Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. Hey, Gordon. How are you this week? Excellent. Excellent. Good to see you. Good to have you back. Guys, this is episode number 118. And we've only been doing this together, Gordon. What, this is like our fourth or fifth episode together? I can't remember this morning, so I don't know. (laughs) He's telling me it's the fourth, so he's probably right. Good of you to leave, you know, not want to tackle a tough subject right away. (laughs) So what we're going to talk about today is what constitutes a good photograph, whatever the heck that means. So thanks, buddy. I'm glad to throw this at you. (laughs) Good on you, good on you. So, what prompted this this idea? Oh, you did. Oh, crap. It's my <laughs> fault again. Well, you kept telling us uh, every photograph must have an intent. Every photograph must have a story. But the implication that if it doesn't have a story, you don't press that shutter button. Okay. Now, in that context, we're talking about a made photograph rather than a snapshot. Because a snapshot can still be a good photograph, but it may not appeal to quite so many potential viewers. Fair enough? Fair enough, but I think it comprises both. Okay. Tell me more. Well, as I see it, some photographs, uh, particularly in the current literature, talk about all the things that are sup- would be perhaps judged in a contest. There's a, I use the word advisably. Uh, they talk about uh, composition. They talk about lighting. Nobody talks about what gives it that wow factor. Mm, I concur with that, because that, that would be somewhat subjective. It is, but if you... Sometimes you see it and you know it, and other times you don't. I can't disagree with you on that. Um, Having gone through the uh, training and accreditation to be a photographic judge, I I made the decision that it's all a lot of crap, and I've got uh, admittedly no tolerance whatsoever for contests because they tend to be very judgmental on fairly static things. But I do think that anybody looking at a photograph can decide if they like it or not. Mm-hmm. And if they do, at that point for them, it's a good photograph. Right. So I think the question comes down to, are there elements both readily measurable and highly immeasurable that differentiate one photograph that we like, that we enjoy, that we get something out of looking at, versus perhaps a number that we don't. I think it's the number we don't that is the difficult part of this exercise. Okay, okay. So I I know that you, as is your want, being a medical professional, you're very fact-driven. Yes. But I noticed that you know, as you've, we've talked about this, not just once, a lot of the ideas that 
you've responded with when we've talked about photographs, they're not all data driven. You've said on a couple of occasions, you, you know, I really like this image and yet it would never pass judgment in a contest because the light isn't perfect or the composition isn't perfect or there might be a, my goodness, there could be a leaf out of place or a strand of hair. Why don't those things bother you when you see an interesting, a photograph that's interesting to you? Because if it's, if it's something that's there for no reason, then it's there for no reason. But if it's something that's there that is conveying something within the photograph, something about the person, something about the person's character, something about the atmosphere, then it becomes relevant. I think that that's a very good observation. Uh, Yesterday I was involved in hosting, not doing, uh, a photographic critique. And I would call this a blind critique because the photographer didn't provide any detail on intent, goal, what, in this case, the fellow wanted to achieve. But he was very absorbed um, with technology. Well, this person is in a bright, lives in a bright state. They're fair-skinned, so they have a lot of freckles, so I thought I should get rid of the freckles. But couldn't explain why. Right. You know, why are we doing all this retouching and all this extra work? Um, and with great respect, it wasn't an interesting photo. <laughs> it was very boring. Uh, yes, composition was a problem. Not particularly elegant. But his goal, if he had stated it, was to make a lovely portrait of this person who was very important to him. And it disturbed me that the person offering the critique didn't spend any time on that. Okay. They spent time on, you know, is it perfectly sharp? Is the lighting right? Is there a distraction in the light? Oh, oh, the eyes are dead center. That's bad. Um, And so what direction are these folks who are literally trying to achieve something but maybe not articulating their goal very well. How do, the, how do these commentaries help them? You know, how can we, as peers, help folks make better photographs, better in the context of one that is more pleasing to the creator and potentially more pleasing to other viewers? What do you think? Um, I think once somebody is on the path to with one particular image there's not much you can do for that image unless your critique suggests that they go back and redefine their reason for taking that image They may not get a chance to take a second one, but maybe the next time they do it, they will have a better idea of where to go with it. 
so this comes back to your original statement, which is understanding or showing up with intent and with a plan. I believe that that is probably the most important thing we can do to a photograph. I, I heard it initially in my early stages at, at the camera club uh, from you, and I didn't quite understand it. And uh, I read the same thing in other places by uh, very illustrious photographers who God knows should have known what they were talking about. But they were adamant that if you start without being able to define your image, um, you won't get anywhere. Fair enough. And in the context of a made photograph, rather than one just randomly grabbed, uh, I'm going to agree with you. So let's go down that path. Okay. So there are probably 10,000 websites that'll tell us what the elements of a good photograph are. And a lot of it is bunk. Well, they mostly cover, they mostly cover the standard issues of composition. So does composition matter? It matters in the technical production of the photograph. Okay. It doesn't matter in how you visualize the photograph. Okay. So in that context, when we talk about composition, we're talking about how the image is, the primary subject, is laid out in the frame. You know, that could be... That's one. That could be drop dead center. It could be following one of the compositional guidelines, the rule of thirds, golden spiral, all that sort of stuff. And those are... Those tools have been inferred, not defined, but inferred from characteristics that have been viewed in images, not just photographs, but also paintings mm -hmm. and, that, and other artwork, that say, oh, I like this. It feels comfortable to me. Correct. You know, like a, a photograph of somebody um, sort of half side on. We tend to like that head on the side of the frame that gives the eyes space to look into, mm -hmm. as opposed to where the eyes are looking right at the edge of the frame, that's more discomforting. Right. So we could say that the second one breaks the rules of composition, but that may or may not on its own define the photograph as good or bad. So sometimes I think that folks get caught up in some of these uses of things they're useful tools, but they're only tools. Mm -hmm. You know, you provided some in your research, negative space, leading lines, framing rules, rule of thirds, symmetry. You know, I think one of the things I suggest to people that every photograph that they make with intent might benefit from some cropping. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are lots of photographs who say, I never crop. It's whatever it comes out of the camera. And that's fair but I'm not sure that that's what a great painter would have done. I don't think any of the painters have done that because what they're putting on the canvas, they've already cropped in their mind. Right. Precisely. So 
when I think about some of the photographers that I like, and we look at their work, it's probably safe to say I can't always identify what the goal and the intent of the photographer was for every image, but there are some that I can. So let's use a very famous example that you and I both know. Um, the photograph that was on the na- cover of National Geographic, Afghan Girl by mm-hmm. Steve McCurry. Yes. That's a pretty powerful image. And yet there's nothing there except the image of the woman as a young person. Right. Why did that photo work? I think because not so much the composition. It was what was getting through that person's eyes into, well, let's call it a soul for want of a better word. Okay, that's fair, but that's okay. And that is what is coming out uh, of that image, and it's coming out of the eyes. Um, I think that there's been a lot of analysis of that image, maybe too much analysis, but that's pretty consistent. The The story uh, is told by the eyes of the woman. Yes. We don't know exactly what the story is, because we don't know what she's seeing. Or thinking. Or thinking. But boy, there's a story and emotion in there somewhere. Uh, That image has a lot of what I call emotional commotion. A whole lot of it, yes. You can't just look at it and go, yeah, okay, whatever. Yep. And I think that that's probably been very true in a lot of cases uh, for folks who've seen the image who are not inherently photographers or artists or judges. Uh. I don't know of anybody, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's seen that image and said, yeah, I don't got it. I got nothing. Yep. They got it. They got it. And I think that's credit. And you don't have to think about it. No. That's right. It doesn't require a whole lot of analysis. You look at it and it's there or it's not there. Um, One of my favorite photographers that I've discovered... um, is an American photographer named Vivian Meyer. Yes. Ms. Meyer was never making photographs to show to anybody. She didn't care. In fact, you know, she just shot and shot and shot for her own pleasure and often didn't even have the money to develop the film. Mm-hmm. And we won't say that every image that she made was a work of art. I mean, I don't think we've ever met anybody who does that. But boy... There are some absolutely killer storytelling images in there made by a lady who was never trained as a photographer, never trained as an artist, who just walked around Chicago with her charges. She was a nanny and made absolutely timeless, very compelling photographs. And at least to me, and I know you've looked at her work too, Mm The great ones are emotionally charged. Yep. I mean, it's yeah, not. Is it not? <laughs> it's not composition and it's not exposure. I mean, if those things are nice, they're complimentary, but they don't make the images 
amazing. Right. So could we say that having emotional context, the display of emotion, you know, my favorite phrase, emotional commotion. Yes. Uh, is that one of the integral things that makes a photograph better? I would uh, unequivocally say yes. The part that I struggle with is how do you get to the point of the emotional commotion? And sometimes it's there, and sometimes it's not. Yeah, and I, 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 I concur with you. I've certainly been in situations where I thought, oh, this is going to be an amazing photograph, you know, and this is a great subject, and there's a lot happening here, you know, and I've done my work and pressed my shutter, and I come home and go, yeah, there's nothing here. <laughs> I don't know if there's a, that happens to other photographers. I'm kind of hazarding a guess that it does. Sometimes getting that emotion, it's just not there. And if the emotion isn't there, then there's nothing for the viewer to read. Right. You know, it becomes like a bad B movie or something yep. like that. Sometimes I wonder, <clears throat> uh, the, the ones, the Afghan girl, uh, as the ongoing example, you don't have to think about it. But uh, I've recently reviewed uh, a photographer and when I was looking up the photographers he was proclaimed as being a revolutionary whatever and I looked at his images and I said this is crap I, I couldn't find anything useful in them and I said well I'm supposed to do a presentation on this how am I going to stand up and talk about this? But then I read the story. And knowing the background or the circumstances under which the story was done, mm -hmm. those images have just blown me away. I, 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 it was an epiphany. I was, it happened last night. I was reading this thing and making, making my usual reams of notes and... And as soon as I hit that point, I said, oh, my God, look at what this guy has done. So, so I, I'm, well, I guess what I'm getting at is that sometimes it's obvious and sometimes you have to dig a bit, you have to look behind the scenes, and if the with the background knowledge, what you're looking at takes on a whole different significance. And I think... I think that you've hit on something that's really important here, that when it comes to viewing a photograph, it requires effort by the viewer. Mm -hmm. It's not just sit back in your chair and everything is given to you on a, on a silver platter where there isn't a whole lot of thought required. I mean, I, when you say what, what you just said, I think of, uh, another photo that I find um, emotionally ripping, um, The Vulture and the Little Girl by Kevin yes. Carter. Mm -hmm. Now, I knew the story of 
Mr. Carter getting that photo before I actually saw the story, okay. saw the photo. And yet the first couple of times I presented it to people, uh, they were offended. They felt it was brutal. They thought he was a horribly evil person. Um, and I invite listeners to go look it up and draw your own conclusions. Um, Mr. Carter won a Pulitzer Prize for that photograph. Mm-hmm. But the reaction to the photograph by people who didn't take time to learn right. the background was so negative it may have contributed to his suicide. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and he did commit suicide uh, after that photograph was published. And the reality is that the little girl was never in any particular danger. Right. But he framed the photo. Go back to your context of framing and composition. He framed the photo because he needed to tell a story. A story that was ripping at him personally about starvation in Africa. Um, In the greater context that there was food being sent to this part of Africa, but it was being stolen before it got to the people who needed it. Right. Um, and this incredibly ripping photograph got people who took the time to read the accompanying articles to learn more about what was happening and maybe take action or you know, write to their government critter or whatever right. uh, and get engaged. But there was massive emotion in it, but we don't know necessarily what emotion the girl was feeling. Her parents, who were just out of frame, were feeling. Right. Or what Mr. Carter was feeling when he made the photograph. Right. So to your point, in that case, we had to take the time to invest as viewers. Not just sit back and go, oh, pretty, pretty, oh, bad, ugly. Now, we, you, you and I have gone, when museums were open, to the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibit on multiple occasions and how many times have we gotten there and just said oh my goodness and just sat down and looked at a photograph right. for a long period of time because there was such a story in it yep you know, but interestingly the number of times that happens is not very often i concur it's not there, very there are often people who are winning prizes they're being awarded everything and we're looking at those things and saying, eh, yeah, so. Yeah, some, in a lot of cases, it's right place, right time, right skill. Right. But there's nothing emotionally charged or particularly compelling to that photo. And then there are others, you know, and, and I think you know the one I'm talking about, that high, high long shot of, um, were they deer or elk on the snowfield? Right shot from a long distance or the one that we saw of the, uh, the, the ox, I believe. Yeah, there, ox. there was, there was some kind of, uh, of a bison or something. Herd, herd, herd animal. Yes. And there was another one that we had seen, I think, guess the previous year of a polar bear, very small polar ah, bear. yes. Right on the top of a ridge, certainly not center frame, not on one of the key intersections in the rule of thirds, but boy, did that photo, I, I remember you and I just going, okay, I've got to sit down and drink this in. This is magical. The kind of stuff that I would put on my wall. 
So I think it comes down to a lot of what you're, you've been talking about. The tools matter, but there's got to be something special. Um, now, in, in your research, you talked about something called elliptical storytelling. And I confess, this is a new concept to me. Maybe tell the listeners what that means. Um, I, I asked the same question. Uh, as you said, being a factual sort of person, I'm saying, okay, what do you mean by elliptical? But the examples that were given with this were the image was there, but a crucial part of the image was was not. Um, there was a set of feet under a table, but you couldn't see who they belonged to. So the feet told the story, but indirectly, because you you couldn't see the people. It was a man and a woman, let's say. Uh, you know that they were paying attention to each other. So the, the body language was present in the feet. You didn't have to see the rest of it to know what was being said. And and there were two, three examples. Uh, there was that one. There was somebody stepping out of a car. There was a rotten pair of sneakers on somebody's feet. and the, And the story was there, but you didn't have to see the person. So in that context, then, the photographer isn't hitting you in the face with the story. They're allowing you to write the story. Yes, you are writing the story. And that makes you feel more engaged. Yes. Because you're personally involved. Yes. So sometimes, if I'm hearing you right, some of the things that can make a good photograph are not blatant expo exposition of a subject. Yes but more creating a contextual area of inquiry that the viewer could fill in for himself or herself. Right. That makes sense to me. Um, one of the other things that we talk about are capturing these iconic moments, um, a time, a place, something that the audience can relate to because they have some type of context in that, in that space. Uh, I think of this in the context of animal photography, and, and you're a much more serious bird photographer than I am, because you have patience and I don't. <laughs> but how many times have we seen thousands of bird photographs well exposed, well composed, that are just birds on a stick? Yep. What we find is missing and I'm going to credit my friend Moose Peterson for this, right. is gesture. Yes. What is happening that's special? What takes us to a point in time? You know, and, and I've, I think from when it comes to birds, just speaking for myself, I've done more work on raptors than any other type of bird. Right. And I've had the pleasure to learn to handle raptors and to fly raptors uh, from the fist. And they're amazing creatures. Not all that bright, some of them. <laughs> but they are amazing creatures. But they're, you know, I could make a thousand images of an owl. But if there's no gesture, I got a thousand nothing. Right. So in everything, I think that there's also, we should be looking for gesture. Little children, you know, 
a kid playing soccer. Yep. Is the kid standing on the field interesting, or is the kid falling over the ball or Something getting that. getting his or her first kick in? Yep. Or their first block, you know, when they've got their arms up and their eyes are closed and they look terrified, but they're standing there and they're doing it. Right. So this concept of gesture is critically important regardless of what we're photographing. Now, it's hard to have gesture in the context of a landscape, but we still can. It could be clouds scudding across the sky, using a longer exposure to have cloud movement. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked last week about uh, neutral density filters, right. using filters to smooth out water or to create motion in water. Right. You know, I think we've all seen the photographs of uh, Niagara Falls because yep. we live sort of in the area and you go yep yep those are falls yep and then we've seen the other ones where you get a sense of the power and the volume and the duration uh of what's happening there right. and some of that is timing some of it is skill but some of it is also another point that you make which is where you shoot from right you know i think we we understand that if we shoot from a low angle, we give the sub and the subject is higher than us, we give it some power. If we shoot from a high angle, we're diminishing the subject to some extent. Right. That's why photographs of children taken from high level are so um, uninspiring. Right. But you talk about you know, making a photograph of a child or a pet. Where are you when you make that? Well, you have to be down at their level then. And let's face it, for me, it's not that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got grandkids. so <laughs> I do. <laughs> when you get down, when you when you make photographs of your grandkids, one of the things I've noticed is you're at their eye level or even sometimes below it. Yep. Because you're trying to tell the story and give them a sense of more than just a short human. Yep. So... Would you say that where you are, as the photographer, in the decision that you make in making the image also influences whether it's a good photograph? I think absolutely. Um, it, it changes the entire context uh, of, of the image, uh, depending on how you shoot it. If you're shooting low against the sky, you can do that either with people or you can do that with... Uh, architecture, uh, a minaret against the sky with the clouds in the background is a whole lot different from a minaret shot from the top looking down at the marketplace. Absolutely. And both could be <coughs> compelling stories. Yes. It all de depends on your approach. Uh, I saw a photograph yesterday by a photographer who lives in London. Um, guy I've come to know because he submits work from time to time. And he put a ton of effort into finding the right place, right time of year. So he could, as the sun was, and I believe the sun was coming up, have the cross at the top of St. Paul's mm -hmm. dead center in this giant sunball that he shot with a suit with a with a thousand millimeter focal length. Right. So he not only had to know where the sun was, he had to know where St. Paul's was, he had to know where he needed to be and the two times of year. Right. And there were only two. When that cross would be right dead center in mm -hmm. the sun as it came up. 
it was a brilliant image, you know, and, and it was interesting because, you know, other folks were saying, well, you know, there's that thing over there. You should probably have taken that. <laughs> this is a National Geographic quality cover. Get a grip, people. Right. You know, and, and he said, well, I don't know if it's good. I said, do you like it? Yes. Did you do the work? Yeah, I worked hard for this. Were you successful the first time? And he laughed because, as most of us know, yeah, that first one shot, one <laughs> one perfect image thing, I'm, I don't know that that happens, you know? No, it doesn't. Uh, but he was very concerned that what, what, what other people would think of the image. Right. Do you think that that is powerful or debilitating? Uh, which part? The fact that you think oh, you're concerned about what other people would think? Yeah. Or, uh, it's debilitating for you, and it matters not one little bit. So in your, wor in your words, and I'm not trying to put them in your mouth, is if you like it, that's good. That is good. And if someone else doesn't like it, it doesn't matter. Correct. It's not that it's bad, but you just don't care. Yeah. I mean, like we said, we've been to we've been to exhibits of award-winning photography, and we both looked at it and went, "Yeah, so." <laughs> so I think that I think that getting concerned about what makes a photograph good based on the opinion of someone else is really a, a horribly dangerous and frustrating waste of time. Now yes. we've both met folks who do that and probably never change them, and that's their choice. But that doesn't go into what makes the photograph good. You know, as a, as a former working professional, the only time that I cared what somebody else thought of the photograph is when they were paying me to make right. it. And otherwise... But what you're saying takes us right back to where we started. And... Uh, I'll, I'll credit... Uh, a teacher of mine, uh, a postgraduate teacher of mine, who uh, drilled into me that I should not attack or even attempt, um, that's uh, for want of a better words to say, the management of a case until I could define in less than a sentence what was required. Very and fair. And if I could not do that, he says, well, then you can talk from now till sundown and you won't know where you're going. But if you can define it, you can decide how to get there. And to go back to the point of photography, if you start with not knowing what you want to achieve, you can shadow it, you can flash it, you can do what you want with it. But if you don't know where you are in the in the process, you'll never know when you've got there and it'll never look right. If you did define it in the first place, you'll know when you're there and you don't care what anybody else thinks. I think I think that's a very telling statement, you know. Um, we've both uh, studied Oriental philosophy. We're familiar with the concept that a journey of 10,000 steps starts with the first one. Mm -hmm. 
and that our journeys may change as we move along. But there's a journey with intent. We're not just randomly wandering. Right. No, that's not to say we may not find an interesting photograph of randomly walking around. Mm-hmm. We've both done it. Sure. But we drove to some place where we could randomly walk around <laughs> <That's right. laughs> to see if we could find something that was outside the scope of the norm, right? The boring. Yep. You know, as we've, uh, as I, as I've stolen um, on many times, many times from the now past lyricist Neil Peart, everybody got to elevate <laughs> from the norm, right? Everybody got to deviate from the norm because normal is normal and that might be boring. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if I make a normal photograph, I don't edit it because it's boring. Right. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I want to do something that's different, that's telling a story, that's got some emotional commotion, that's got some context that matters to me. And I'm... You know, at this stage of my life, I'm at the point where I'm perfectly okay if nobody else gets that. Correct. And I know it's tough for, for younger folks, particularly given, you know, cultural pressures and you got to fit in. They don't all necessarily have that. You know, it's, I, I, see it, I see it with young people and younger photographers. It's like, oh, okay, that's the current style. I was looking at... Um, Headshots of a daughter of a of a coworker, and I'd seen them all before. Right, you know the hand was in the same place. It was the same look. It was the same. In this case, it was a young lady, and you know, it was the same eye makeup. It was the same. If you'll pardon me, vacuous, dumbass expression that I've seen a thousand times, and that person may have been happy with that photograph and good for them. Because it looked like every other one. Right. But I can't, in that context, say to a photographer, if you want to be good, just go copy somebody else. Maybe copy them until you learn how they did it. But if you don't turn it into your own, you're just a Xerox machine. So then maybe there are two kinds of photographs. And I think you mentioned this. Um, If you're being paid and... That's what the payer wants to see. Then maybe the whole <clears throat> um, creative—it it, it plays a part in the technique and how you how you get to it. But it's maybe not as important as the one that you are doing in expressionistic way. Maybe. Well, I, in all I can speak to is my own experience, and I'm going to say yes. So. Three plus decades ago, I used to do a lot of annual report photography. Right. And back in the day, I'm laughing, but only because I've been there, done that. Every annual report had to have a photograph of a senior executive, usually a man at the time. Right. um, Sitting at a desk with both forearms on the desk. Right. In his dominant hand holding a gold pen. Right. And looking studiously into the camera. Right. Now, I had to learn how to light that to make those folks 
look good, to bring out the best in them as best I could, and to pose them. But there was no art in that. Right. That was very mechanical process. And were they happy? Yeah, they were. You know, I got paid and I got hired to come back and do other stuff. You know, (laughs) do office shots, do factory shots, you know, go out into the plant. But those are mechanical photographs. And yes, I was compensated for them. And I think fairly well at the time uh, for doing that sort of stuff. But are they in my portfolio? No, I would guess not. No, they're not. They're not art. Or they're not they're not what I would call creative art. Right. And so there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And it's the same thing we talk about in our tutorials. Go do this thing. Specifically this thing. Your goal is not art. Right. Your goal is to improve the skill. Right. To ingrain the, the ability so you can create art and not get distracted by the technical. So yeah, there are multiple kinds of photographs, but not all of them are going to be good photos. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going to be very pedestrian because they're part of a learning process sure. or a delivery engine. Um, you brought up using methods uh, to help make a photograph perhaps more interesting, um, using unique lighting. Right. Color, contrast, um, using the power of a silhouette yes. that creates mystery or not, yes. or threat or joy. Those are, those are all viable things. You also brought up um, intentional camera movement. Yes. Um, how does that make a better photograph, given the randomness of it? I think in in the right place, right time, depending what you try to bring out in the person, that I think where is where the lighting, and this takes you back to the technical aspects of the photography. <coughs> that uh, depending on the lighting, you can you can modify things, you can modify colors. Um, and that may raise or lower the mood of the photograph. Mm-hmm. So if you can see the mood in your mind's eye, then you can create that using something like this. Okay, so in that case, it is done with intent. <coughs> you know, like we used, to, we used to use warming gels on brides. Correct. Always. Mm-hmm. To bring their skin to life and to create separation from a white dress. Right. Um, or where you might... Um, Crosslight a gentleman with a lot of skin texture, right? You know, to bring out the um, the sense of learning and experience, right? That the person had had. Um, we tended not to do that with ladies. Yes, um, wasn't something that they were looking for, and that's okay. So I think these are viable things, but they're done with with with, with not intent. as some random chance thing. Yes. We, we know that random is going to be there whether we invite random or not. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a law. <laughs> you know, entropy is all. Right. It, it's coming. 
you can try to tell it not to, and it's not going to listen. So those things, I think, can be can be useful. My concern with them in a lot of photo schools is they're taught as the as being the end. And the one that you brought up, in, intentional camera movement. Right. Uh, the intent is to allow the smearing of the light and the color to contribute to your story. Correct. But it's not the smearing of the light and the color that is the story. No. But a lot of the schools teach it like it is. And those are not... Well, maybe the photographer had a lot of good fun building them, but it's not a photograph you're going to stick with if there's nothing else there. Right. So, again, I think we look at these tools as... As tools. They're tools. They're not art themselves. Correct. Because Lord knows I've seen lots of ICM and went, please, stop. But then I admit, I also don't get Jackson Pollock. I just don't get it. And lots of folks do. So not every viewer is going to interpret things the same way. Yes, I, I <laughs> that's the point that I made out there was, you know, choose your audience. If, if, if that's the audience that you think is going to be looking at it, and if you think that they're going to enjoy that, then sure, use it. Well, absolutely. And if you are one of those folks who shoot for contests, yes. better research who your judges are. Yeah. Because otherwise, you don't know if you're building the image to suit them. And I do know, I do know folks who take contests very seriously, mm -hmm. and they put as much work, perhaps more work, into figuring out who the audience is and what the audience is going to like right. than they do in the actual artistic portion of the photograph. It becomes a construction right. to serve a client. I guess there's nothing wrong with it. I got no time for it myself, but, you know, to each his or her own. Right. So, as we come to the end of the episode, because, as usual, I look at the clock and go, oh my goodness, look at how much we've been doing. Uh, if you could give a listener, you know, a, as you say, can you say it in a minute? If you're going to go out and try to make better photos, yes, the whole title of what this podcast is about, yes, what are those elements of guidance that you would offer them? Uh, I would, uh, and again, this is borrowed from somebody else. Uh, we won't take names, but if you can define for yourself what you are seeing and what you try to convey. Make that the intent. If you can define your intent, I want to do this and this and this. Or this. You then figure out what you have to use to get to the point that, that you defined. Some of it will be uh, the technique of photography. Some will be the compositional elements. And then you look for the one spark that is going to define what you were talking about in the first place. The rest of it, I believe, is probably irrelevant. Fair enough. On my side, I'm going to take, as you did, teachings of other people. Um, 
easy enough to par- uh, to paraphrase Stephen J. Covey, start with the end in mind. Where did you want to, where do you want to end up? Yep. Build the plan for that and take the time to build the plan <coughs> excuse me such that expect on the first go something's going to force the plan to change. Yes. You know, we 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 say in in combat for example, all plan plans are perfect and none of them survive first contact with the enemy. <laughs> Uh, which is factually true. But if we have a plan and an intent and we've got the tools and the framework and we've practiced and, and we've created as many constructs as we can based on our skill and the tools that we have, while we can't prevent change, it may put us in a better position to enjoy the change when it happens. You know, we show up to photograph the kid and they're not happy and it's going to be a bad kid day okay live with it but now leverage that sure except that okay i showed up to make you know this photograph of little johnny or little sally and they're beautiful and happy and you know what today they're not today their horns are coming out and they're (laughs) scratching everything up and they're running amok and they're like wasps on meth so but why maybe not? That's your photograph. <laughs> that it. That's your photograph. And will there be emotion in it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Will there be story in it? Oh yeah. And maybe there's a second photograph there, which is of mom, as she heads for the liquor cabinet. <laughs> I don't know. But we have to be open to what is there, open to what is there, not what we hope to be there. Yes. See what is there. And if you can take the time as a photographer to see what is available to you and apply whatever skills and tools you have, that's going to be a better photograph. I'll go along with that, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Gord. And folks, thank you as always for listening. We do appreciate your support. And I want to thank everybody who takes time to send an email or a comment in. Uh, We've been very lucky. Some very nice folks have sent us emails uh, commenting on how they like the podcast and and how they like some of the articles on the photo video guy. Um, We're not paid to do this. We do this because it pleases us to do it and because we might be a little nuts. Fair enough. (laughs) Thanks again to everyone. This has been episode 118 of Make Better Photos and Videos with Ross and Gordon. We'll talk to you again soon.